chapter 25 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30. So if you would turn there with me, we'll continue our study of the verse-by-verse analysis of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. This is a uh, uh, discussion that the Lord gave with four of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, up on the Mount of Olives, and they asked some very important questions. Tell us what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Well, what's going on here? They wanted to know. They were living in the first century. It was the week of the cross. Jesus was getting ready to die on the cross, and so he was preparing them. He proceeds to answer their questions with his... um, most extensive prophetic discourse that he gave while on this earth. So we have been studying this now for several months, and uh, it's getting ready to come to a conclusion. It's quite interesting because he has told them about the different things they would see. Israel would be back in the land, would be one of them. And get ready because when you see all these things taking place, then uh, his coming is near, it is close. And so we can... Honestly, say it's close. Uh, we have no idea how to date it. It wouldn't be a wise thing to do that. We're not going to go get our white sheets out and stand out on a mountaintop and sing, Do Lord. We're not going to be doing that type of thing. What we're going to be doing, though, is listening to the parables that he's teaching about be prepared. Be prepared and get ready because things are getting ready to happen. Now, the good thing for us on this side of these events, is knowing that there's going to be a rapture. It's called the rapture of the church, the harpazo, the snatching away. is That's what the Greek word is. And it means he's going to come back in the moment, a twinkling of an eye, and he's going to pull his church out of here. And he's going to take out the righteous and leave the wicked for a period of seven years, known as the tribulation. Now that's comforting. For all who have believed in his son, accepted the fact that Christ died on the cross in their place. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. You believe that and you'll you'll be one of the ones that are gone. If you don't believe that, then this is what's coming. And so this is a preparation for some of the events that are explained more fully throughout the book of Revelation and other passages, Zechariah 14, etc. But he is preparing his disciples. He is giving them a message to take out into all of the world and he is uh, getting them ready for what is going to come in that last generation. To understand spiritual things, it requires a spiritual discernment. It means first we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next that we are are in fellowship, if you will. We want to learn. We want to learn from the Holy Spirit who has promised to lead us into all truth and show us things to come. So we need to rely on him. That is who we need to rely on to come to an understanding. Now today is going to be a little bit in in depth. Uh, it just it lends itself in this verse to do this, and you'll be shown some of the ways that things are put together theologically and how you figure things out. So let's take this time, push away all the cares and problems, all the joys of the world. OSU hung on and won 21 to 20 last night for those who couldn't. Stay up all that length of time and oh, you beat Nebraska. So it's a good weekend and we need to put all of that out of our head because these are the important things. Let's pray. 
Father, we're so amazingly blessed to be able to come together in a free country, be able to open up your word, and Father, to be fed from it. We thank you for the fact that it's just as relevant today as the day in which it was written. It was done because it was superintended by you, and you see the end from the beginning. So what you have decided to leave for us to learn is important. It's important to every time frame. You've told us that all scripture is profitable. It's important for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we can grow up and be mature and thoroughly furnish for every good work. So Father, we pray that this morning you'll nourish our souls with this. Help us to understand it and use it wisely. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are at point 14 in this summary, so we've we've been uh, dealing with this for a while. It's based on Matthew 25 and verse 30. And we went through the exegesis of that, and it says, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is one of those scary passages, and in a way it should be. Because who is the worthless slave? Well, we have to go to the context because this is the parable of the talents. The first slave was given five talents. These are, the talent is not defined here. So we see it as assets, assets of any kind. You may have a a great ability to sing. You may have an ability to uh, think, put numbers together. You may have the ability to play the piano. You may have the ability to put together buildings. Whatever that asset is, God has given it to you. You wouldn't have it. That's not a spiritual gift he's talking about. It is something that is an asset that you can do. It could be your life experiences, any number of things. So he says to the one that he gave five, take it, use it. He gave another one two, and he gave another one one. The one that had the five says, I went out and made five more for you. When the master came back and he wanted an accounting of what did you do with what I gave you? Well, the one that had five made five more. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I remember Billy Graham saying a long time ago, they said, well, what would you like to hear the Lord say when you get there? And he said, my answer would be, well done. That's what I want to hear him say. Should be all of our answers. Do we want to hear him say when we stand in front of him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To the one he gave two talents, that guy didn't sit around and complain about it. I love that. He didn't go, well, he gave, he got five and I only got two over here. And I only got two and wah, wah, wah. And he didn't use it. But instead, he took the two and he used them. <clears throat> And he got the same blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the one he gave one talent, he went and hid it in the ground. Do you know what one talent is that he should have put in the bank, the Lord told him? The one talent is life itself. Life itself, every breath we take is a gift of God. It is a gift of His grace. The word charis is the word for grace. Charisma means a result of grace. And every breath we take, when you study out the word, you find out every breath we take (coughs) is a gift of grace. So take that and turn that into eternal life, which is in the presence of God forevermore. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And this slave, this worthless slave, didn't do it. 
Instead, he blamed the master, a lot like Adam did back in the garden. Well, I know you're a tough guy to deal with. You're a tough guy to please. So I just went and hid it. And the master said, you worthless slave. Now, this is the judgment on the worthless slave. Because he didn't even take the gift of life that he had been given and become a believer with eternal life. So he says, throw out the worthless slave. A krios is the word used there, <clears throat> which means without merit or profit. He didn't do anything. He just, the, the one that he had. And he says, into the outer darkness. Now, these are some of the things that make us start thinking about prophecy and the hereafter and stuff. Exoteros is only used with dark. That's the word outside. Skatos is used for darkness. And it means outside of something. So the question is, what is it outside of? And we went through this uh, last week, actually. <clears throat> darkness can be used to describe just an absence of physical light. But it's also used in a spiritual sense. Referring to the authority that Satan has. And he has it over this world. He is the ruler of this world now. Until we step out of the darkness into the light. People that don't choose to step into the light... And who is the light? Jesus is the light. It's not the physical light. People that choose to, to not do that walk in darkness all of their life. And believers can be so mistaken that they walk in darkness. They follow the path of darkness. The prince of the power of the air is a master at deception. So everybody is invited to leave the darkness of Satan and uh, stay out of it. This worthless slave is to be removed from the joy of the master, and you'll notice he did not receive a well done. <clears throat> Where's he moved to? The outer darkness. We went through the verses last week, and clearly the outer darkness is something different from life itself on earth. The word exoteros means from the outside out. So it is different from something on earth. As unbelievers are walking under the authority of Satan, on earth in darkness and this darkness is outside of that at the second advent when Jesus comes back not to take the righteous out and leave the wicked that's the rapture but to take the wicked out and leave the righteous that's the second advent it's going to be dark it's going to be totally dark the lights will have gone out it will uh, it'll just all be over and so here is this darkness that will, will be there. And the Lord will come and light up the world. Now when the Lord lights up the world, how much darkness is left in it? None, right? <laughs> it, it, the darkness flees from that. So the darkness is, is gone. So <clears throat> here is this outer darkness is something outside of this world. Not on this planet earth. Because all of it is lit up at that point in time. So we're identifying this and we're doing what hermeneutically you have to do to try to develop the theology. You study individual pieces because it is like a jigsaw puzzle. And I'm sure we've all put together jigsaw puzzles. The older I get, the bigger the pieces I like <clears throat> on the jigsaw puzzle. Those 10,000 piece puzzles, not going to happen anymore. Thousand piece puzzle, seldom did that ever happen in the history of my life. Did put a few 500s together. But anyway, some of you guys love jigsaw puzzles. You do real good at it. What I do know is you better find the corners. 
It's the first thing you got to find. If you want to put together the jigsaw puzzle of prophecy, you got to find the corners. And we call that the dispensations. Then you have to find the straight edges, what things are clearly defined. So then you get the outline of the puzzle. You know what the most important thing is? The box top. I saw somebody putting together a puzzle the other day, didn't have a picture on it. And I thought, are you a glutton for punishment or what? <laughs> Thankfully, the box top here is a picture of Jesus Christ himself. And if you get done and you don't have him right in the middle of it, you just miss the whole point. And so we're putting this together, looking for the puzzle pieces. Where do they fit? And the way you do this is you look for passages that are similar. And you find out what is similar and what is different. Then you go to the individual verses and you look at those. And then you see how they fit together. Because there are certain things that happen at the second advent that don't happen at the rapture. Certain things happen at the second advent when the Lord returns to defeat all of his enemies. That's Psalm 110. That's what he's going to do. He returns to defeat all of his enemies. And when that happens, certain things are going to come together. And we're going to see some of those things now as we put these passages together because they tell us what time this event is going to occur in conjunction with other events. Now, <clears throat> everywhere the outer darkness is mentioned, so is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everywhere that's only used three times, it is not used in the Old Testament. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is not used in the Old Testament. So when we start looking at it, how does this all fit together? This is what These are things we have to look at and analyze. Now, weeping means that there is a grief over the loss. It's like, okay, there's something we could have had and we didn't get this thing. It's kind of like you had the winning number of Publishers Clearinghouse and didn't mail it in. And then you find out later that it would have been your number had you mailed that number in. There could be some weeping. Gnashing of teeth refers to a sense of ultimate, to utter despair over the realization of ultimate loss. Whenever the Jews started gnashing their teeth, when they would grind their teeth, and it was a sign, they just, they knew they'd missed something. And they were very, very unhappy about it. So to the Jews, remember Matthew's written to Jews, it's especially important because they knew exactly what it meant. There's going to be weeping because they have a loss to the point that it is a realization of total loss. Now, that's where we left off with this. So it's quick up, update. This weeping and gnashing of teeth is shown in the context of Matthew. So when we're going to interpret a book, we have to go with immediate context. What do the verses say on each side of it? And over and over you see people wrenching things out of context. That means that they're not paying attention to the verses right around them. Then there's what's called an intermediate context. That's things that go on within the same book. It's done by the same author. So if we're at the end of the book of Matthew, we want to look earlier on to see how did the Lord use these words and terms and these events earlier on in this book because he's already given us information by which we can interpret this. And then there is what's called the remote context, which are things outside the book because the Bible is 66 books inspired of God put together in a coherent, uh, into a coherent union. So what we find is just uh, 
amazing how all these puzzle pieces fit together. And you'll find that they just keep augmenting one another. They keep clarifying it. Uh, kind of like now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, sometimes what we're looking at gets blurry. And uh, we, I recently had eye surgery. I got real blurry, and then I had eye surgery, and now it's just not as blurry. So <laughs> I would wish it had been a little bit better. But that's, that's the way we look at things. When you take a telescope, it's blurry. When you start to you get it focused in right. That's what happens with Scripture. We look, and that's what it means. Take a careful look. Now, <clears throat> how is it used in Matthew? Matthew 13. Verse 36, and you can follow along if you want to, Matthew 13, 36. says, Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now the tares are weeds, basically, sown among the wheat. And he gave a parable about that, and they said, Explain to us. And he answered and he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And see, the way the Lord is talking about this in the parables, there are people that are listening to him. He's the sower. He, and, he said, and then there are people listening to the devil. That's very clear in this parable. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So when he gives the parable of the wheat and the tares, this is the parable concerning the end of the age. Now they're in Israel, the age of Israel. And right now we're in the age of the church. So this doesn't really apply to us. It's going to apply to the final seven years of the age of Israel. The tribulational period. So the end of the age is the end of the age of Israel in context. That's going to be the second advent. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man <coughs> will send forth his angels. They will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears let him hear. Now see this is a, what is this dealing with. At the rapture. Thing you have to know. Righteous are gone. That's the believers. And wicked are left. And they're left for a period of seven years. And that seven years, there'll be other people get saved. There'll be other people who believe. There will be the 144,000. That's where they come in. Those people will be 12,000 12, of 12 of the tribes of Israel. They'll be male virgin Jews. They'll all get saved. They'll be evangelizing. There will be other people saved after the rapture of the church. But then at the end of it, what is the puzzle piece here? The wicked is taken out and the righteous are left. Why are the righteous left? Because God has promised a kingdom to the Jews that has not yet come to be physically. He's promised this millennial kingdom. It's not yet come to be physically. 
And he, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. You know, 2 Timothy says that if we are faithless, he is faithful. Because he can't deny himself. Now, we're not supposed to be faithless. But sometimes we goof up. And that's just the name of that tune. Sometimes we make mistakes. But he is faithful. When he promises, he keeps his promise. Because that's who he is. He is God. Now, some, we see it in the context of Matthew. We see it also a result of being thrown into the furnace of fire for being a bad fish. Now, see, did you know you were a good fish? They used to have fish signs, you know. It's how they communicated in the first century. And that's how they knew where the Christians were. They marked their passageways through the catacombs, different things like that with this little fish symbol. And it's a uh, pretty neat little symbol. Uh, Matthew 13, see we're progressing through Matthew here. We're in a parable section of it. A result of being thrown into the furnace of fire for being a bad fish. And it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they threw it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. See what he's just said again? At the end of the age, the angels shall come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? It's the second place that it's used. Now, it's also a result of being chopped into pieces. And assigned a place with the hypocrites from Matthew 24, where we see this term weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 24:45, who then is the faithful and sensible servant, whom his master will put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. He taught this a couple of times, this parable. Truly I say to you, I'll put him in charge of all of his possessions. There's an application to us, but he's talking to people in the tribulation. And the application to us is be ready for the trumpet to sound. Be ready for the rapture of the church. Be ready for it to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we're supposed to be ready at any time. We're supposed to be prepared. If that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time and begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunks, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour that he does not know and he, he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall there be and the gnashing of teeth. It's the same word order in the Greek. Now here are the hypocrites he's talking about. It's Matthew, right? Matthew is a tax collector. His Hebrew name was Levi. His Greek name was Matthew because he was an outcast amongst the Jews because they didn't like Roman at all, much less a Jew who was a Roman collaborator. They didn't like him at all. In fact, when the Lord called Matthew to come and follow him, he also called a guy named Simon the Zealot. Now, the Lord picked some real interesting characters for this group of disciples because Levi known as Matthew amongst the Greeks was an outcast in his own family it appears okay? but he put a guy who hated the Romans Simon the Zealot who are the Zealots they're the ones that 
holed up at Masada and died rather than submit to the Romans. And the Lord put those two together because he wanted them to learn how to love one another. I mean, he didn't pick a bunch of easy guys to get along with. And he put them together there and he says, Lends more difficulty if two of you will agree on anything, I will hear you from heaven and act on it. Now, that's what he told them. It's just it's what he's two of them. You can almost hear the frustration in his voice because they're arguing over who's the greatest, who will be first in the kingdom, and all this. And they weren't humble enough, any of them, at that point to, to be anywhere in the kingdom. Now, the only other place the term weeping and gnashing of teeth is used describes the realization of loss of participation in the millennial kingdom. When we start looking for things, where are they used? That's what we want to know. We want to study the verses where these phrases are used so we get a better picture of what the phrase looked like. Now, <clears throat> the realization of loss, what were the Jews looking for when Jesus came preaching the kingdom? They wanted the millennial kingdom. They wanted him to throw the Romans out. All they thought about was in physical terms. That's why they rejected a Messiah, because they offered animal sacrifices and thought they'd taken care of their own sins. They needed a Messiah who would take away sins. So the Jews, when they're here in the kingdom, they're here, it's a real offer of the kingdom that he's giving. But what they don't realize is that the way into the physical kingdom the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, the one everybody has looked for, the way into that is through the spiritual kingdom, and you have to put your faith in Christ in order for that to happen. Then you are delivered from the authority of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now see, that's the way that it works. But what is, the, what is a hypocrite here? Well, the hypocrite is the one who puts on a religious facade and looks good, but doesn't put their faith in the right place. That's what a hypocrite is. It'd be assigned a place in the context of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Who did Jesus not like? Well, he loved everybody, but there were people he didn't like. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember that? Matthew 23. Why? They talked a good story. They said one thing and did another. You th what, look at our country now. How well is he like us? We are loaded with people in high places that, that are hypocrites. Luke 13, this is the only other place that weeping and gnashing of teeth is used. And it gives us another picture. So Luke 13, 22 he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, He'll answer and say, I don't know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. 
when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being cast out. Who's he talking to? He's talking to religious Jews. Exactly he's talking to. He says, and what, are the, what do they identify with? This kingdom. And what about this kingdom? There's going to be a resurrection. Why do we know? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in the kingdom. And David. And he said here, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. There will be a resurrection for that to occur. But you're not there. So you might have said all the good things and Jesus may have taught in your streets of Jerusalem and you think you ought to be in just because of your genetics or because of your position or whatever it is. And he says, that's not the way it works. The door is going to be locked and you're going to be gone. Then you yourselves being cast out, they will come from east and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Now they're going to be cast out. We put it together into where? The outer darkness. Which is what? Not on the surface of planet earth. And they will come from east and west, from north and south. They will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. Who will be first? Who will be last? Well, let's see. It seems like the church sneaks in there somewhere. Doesn't it? They were kind of last, but they'll be first into the kingdom. But then there were those who died during the time of Daniel, etc. The Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and they'll be they'll be last to be uh, resurrected. Now, the timing of the teaching of the Luke passage has to refer to the resurrection at the second advent, where all humanity is gathered before the separation of the sheep and the goats. That's our context of Matthew 25. Because that's coming up next. So when we start looking at these these characteristics of these events that are going on at the time of the second advent, this is what we what we find. Now those who are removed from the earth and placed into Hades or torments will see all the prior dispensation saints resurrected. Daniel chapter 12 talks about another resurrection. And now at that time, Michael. There's only two archangels mentioned by name in Scripture. Now I know that that people have added more names of archangels and all that, but in the 66 books of the Bible, only two archangels are mentioned, Gabriel and Michael. Now I guess you could say Satan was an archangel, so you could count him in there, but I'm talking about the, the good ones. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That possibly sound like the tribulation? Because it's described the same way in multiple places. This seven years that is still future from us is a time of distress unlike anything the world has ever seen. And he says, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Because there is a book, we're not going to study them today, but there are multiple books. One is a book of works. One is a book called the, the Book of Life. Everybody's name was written in that before Adam came in to be. And that's, that's part of another study in the same way. Everybody's name is written in that. 
There's also another book written called The Lamb's Book of Life. And that's the name of everyone who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens if you're born into this life like the worthless slave and you die in unbelief? Revelation 3 says you're erased out of that book. Now what happens after all of those who didn't believe are erased out of the book of life? It's the same as the Lamb's book of life. When it says the books were opened, it's saying that these books balance. God's plan has been verified. It's been tested. It is, it is true. It is the way it's going to happen. And these books have been known about for a long time. He says, <clears throat> Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, the others to disgrace, and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book till the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. In other words, the words of this book are not going to be understood until there reaches a point in time where they can be. That's the way prophecy is. Sometimes when the prophet uttered the prophecy, they didn't really understand what they were saying. Isaiah didn't have words to describe some of the visions he got in Isaiah 13 and 47. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 50 and 51, they didn't have vocabulary to describe the things that they, that they saw in these visions. So they just communicated them as, as well as they possibly could. But he says, okay, knowledge will increase. And when you start seeing prophecies in the book, like Revelation, that the two witnesses will die in the streets of Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 11, and after three and a half days they will be raised up or resurrected, and the whole world will watch. Now, I remember a long time ago when I was a kid trying to read through the Bible going, this is too weird. I just can't quite understand that. How's this going to happen and all that? And the whole world and TV was still black and white for some of you younger folks in here. And we just barely had it. And we had a remote control, had a wire on it. And sometimes the wire would go haywire and the thing would just keep going through the channels. Until you unplugged it, turned it off, reset it, and did all that other stuff. And the color, the first color TV we got was amazing. And then who'd ever thought that besides getting these signals beamed from a main station, which was 10 miles from our house, that we'd be getting stuff from around the world at the speed of light. None of us ever thought that would happen. So knowledge will increase. Knowledge did dramatically increase. We can see things almost as they happen on the other side of the world right now. He says the whole world will watch. Well, I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. You can use figurative language without question, but it literally is going to happen. And I believe people will watch that. Can you imagine? Here we have football with the, all the replays. Don't you just love that? Look at this. I think he was short of the goal line. And then the next thing we know, we got 18 angles of whether or not the guy crossed the goal line or fumbled the ball or whatever it is. And now we have satellites that can 
read the label on a golf ball from 10 miles up. It's amazing. And knowledge will increase. Why? Because some of these prophecies took a technology that was not available at the time that they were uttered. But God knew they would. And so he brought those things to be at the right time, just like he does. Now, <clears throat> the clearest information, let's see, I've already done that. There it is. Concerning the afterlife of these saints is found in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, verse 19, you can go ahead and turn there with me if you want to. Because the rich man and Lazarus, parables, one of the things that they teach in seminary is don't build an element of theology off a parable. Because a parable, by definition, is an analogy. It is a picture. Uh, parabole means to cast alongside. It's an analogy. But what we find <clears throat> with a parable is that parables, when the Lord is talking in parables, that's because there's a doctrinal basis for it. So it can be that that hermeneutical point can be misapplied is what I'm saying. Because the doctrines that go into that parable, they're all true and fine. So when you go to a parable like the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's an analogy, but it has a literal fulfillment and the, and the doctrines are already established. So you can't dismiss the parable because it says something that does, doesn't uh, maybe fit what, what you like. In Luke 16, 19, there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And it came about that the poor man died. And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now, when you study these, you find out that there's a place called Sheol. And that's the Old Testament equivalent. And in Sheol, there's a place called Paradise and a place called Torments. And they are separated, as this parable teaches, by a what is called a great gulf fixed. They can't go back and forth. It's like a hole that is there. And then the hole evidently leads to the to the uh, pits of hell, the lake of fire that is down there. But in, in this is where, what did Jesus say to the, to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? Where was paradise? Paradise is also called Abraham's bosom, which is what we, we get from here. And it says, in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Now, the word torment is basanas. It's used three times. You find it in uh, Matthew 4.24 of the physical torment of the body. And then you find it in this passage in Luke, 6, in Luke 16. And so it's used at physical torment of the body. He says, being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, in the place where Abraham is. It tells you he's connected to Abraham, part of the Abrahamic covenant. He believed God like Abraham did. It was imputed to him righteousness. It tells you a lot of things that when you, when you read that. 
And he cried out, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's the rich man crying out. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. That tells you the place is hot. Right? There's some heat that goes on there, and there is no, evidently no moisture. I guess it's a dry heat, so it's okay. That's what they try to tell people when they're trying to sell land, beachfront property in Arizona. But he says, for I am in agony. Agony is adenao. Uh, present passive indicative indicates it's an ongoing agony. It's used four times. Interestingly, Luke 2.48 gives us kind of an insight into this word. Jesus' parents were looking for him, and they, they were in agony over the fact they couldn't find him. We know where he was. He was in the temple educating the wise men, okay, 12 years old. But they were upset over this. It's used in Acts 20.38. Whenever Paul had spent three years with the Ephesian elders, he'd been teaching them, uh, <clears throat> really the first seminary that we had, He'd been teaching them, and he was getting ready to leave. And he said, I commend you to the grace of God. Okay, there reaches a point in time. You're grown up. You've been taught. Now it's up to you. Between you and the grace of God. And it talks about the agony they were going through saying goodbye. Which we've all been through some type of a thing like that. We've been through an agony saying goodbye to a loved one. And it's used in Luke 16... Verse 24 and 25, our passage is here. The four times that it's used. And he says, child, remember that during your life you received good things. Your good things. The rich man. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. Now he's being comforted here. And you are in Adunao. You're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Or great chasm fixed. There's a hole in the ground. The easiest way to say it. In order that those who wish to come over here to you may not be able and none may cross over from there to us. So you're asking for something that's impossible. The rich man said, send Lazarus with some water. He said, it's impossible. Not going to happen. These two areas are totally separated. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Place is tapas, it's a location, identifiable location. And basanas, our word for torment, we just saw. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, some were persuaded when Jesus rose from the dead. That's very, very clear. So these are, these are this is a picture of after death between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, <clears throat> that's the clearest information we have about the af afterlife in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and Jesus spoke it. So if we look at these things, 
we see that the outer darkness is not on the earth. We see weeping and gnashing of teeth is used to describe being thrown into the furnace of fire and missing the blessings of the millennial kingdom. And there's a conscious torment after physical death for the unsaved. That's one of the things, that three of the things that we see from this. Now what about total failure? Total failure we find starting in verse 31 to verse 46. Now, <clears throat> what we find in verse 31 is the judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Okay, here we are back in the context of Matthew 25. We had the parable of the ten virgins. They weren't prepared. The parable of the talents, they didn't use what was given to them. And now we're going to have the picture of the separation of the sheep and the goats. When? At the second advent. What are these passages talking about? Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, second advent. When he gathers together what? Everybody. And that's what we're going to see in the next verse. When is it going to happen? Second advent. He says he was and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. In verse 32, all the nations will be gathered. Now, I, I get with people, I talk to people that are exegetes, they try to figure out what the word says and figure it out accurately. They know that Jesus is speaking to Jews in the Gospel of Matthew, and they tend to make it only for the Jews. And then you find a passage like this, all the nations will be gathered before him. This is not just a separation of believers and unbelievers in Israel. All the nations will be gathered before him. Uh, the, the Greek is picturesque, if you will, gathered before his face, literally, is what it says in the Greek. Yeah, before his face. Now, what do you think about the face of the Lord? Is he scary? Is he friendly? Sometimes our, our viewpoints get really kind of mixed up, but can you imagine moving yourself or imagining looking directly into the face of the Almighty? Hard to do, isn't it? Would it be humbling to look into the face of the Almighty? You know, wonder what he's going to say. Because he knows every part of you. Every part of you. Nobody has ever fooled him in the history of the world. And believe you me, we have tried. And he says, all the nations will be gathered before his face. And he will separate. Future tense says it's future from the time of the writing. But we know that it's still even future from us because we put enough of the puzzle together. Now the word offerizo, and it means to divide them out. And he says he's going to divide them out from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, <clears throat> the sheep and the goats are from all the nations. It's not just Jews left in Israel that this is going to happen. And the angels are going to play a significant role in the second advent. Now, 
He's already talked about it earlier in Matthew 24, but I want to show you what, what it says here uh, about the angels at the second advent. Matthew 13, he's been building to this all the way through the gospel of Matthew. They're going to gather all that remain from all the earth. Matthew 13, 36, uh, and basically, which is the uh, parable of the tares of the field. We've already read that. But in verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So when he gets together to put everybody together for this final judgment of the second advent as to who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't, the angels are the ones that goes and gets them and separates them out and divides them out. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Interesting statement there. Matthew 13. John will pick that statement up in the book of Revelation to the churches. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Specific information for us. Now they're going to remove the wicked and the righteous. They're going to remove the wicked from the righteous. Matthew 13, 47. We've seen that one too. The dragnet. And they drew out the... the uh, it'll be like a dragnet. They drew it all together. The end of the age, the angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and throw them into the furnace of fire. And everyone needs to pay attention to this coming event. Mark, Matthew 16. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then will repay Every man according to his deeds. Second advent, a judgment is going to happen on earth. And all of the angels will gather them together. Now, the second advent, Jesus will take his seat on the throne in Jerusalem. That once belonged to his father David. So who else is going to be resurrected there? We've already seen Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they're dead. Been dead for a long time. We've got their tombs. We know where they are, but here's a, they're going to be resurrected. Well, in Matthew 19, Peter said, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? I just love Peter. He was just right out front with all of this, all of this, <laughs> all of the, uh, Lack of understanding he could muster at one time. A lot of times he'd just come right out there with it and just, okay, what's for us? Okay? <laughs> you can almost see him saying, I, I really would like some replays and I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking with him one of these days. Peter, what were you thinking when you tried to pull him aside <laughs> and say, no, Lord, we're not going to let this happen to you. 
And what did you think when he said, get behind me, Satan? You got your mind set on the things of man and not on the things of, of God. And he said, <clears throat> Peter said, uh, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. This Matthew 19, he's trying to tell them he's going to Jerusalem to die and they're not listening. And they want to know what they're going to get when they come into kingdom. And he says, in the regeneration, the resurrection, when it happens. In other words, guys, you're going to die before this happens. You will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Now where did David come in? Luke chapter 1. We know what that is. That's that We read that at Christmas time and don't read it anymore. Luke chapter 1 says he will be great. He's talking to Mary. And will be called the Son of the Most High. That's your child. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. That's who this child of Mary would be. Wow. Did he die and was buried and rose again? Yeah. Is he worthy of our faith? Absolutely worthy of our faith. Is it the only way to get into heaven? Well, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. To me, that's a pretty clear statement. He knew who he was. He knew why he was there. He knew what he had come to do, and he did it. Is he worthy of faith? Yes. It'll be time for judgment on all mankind. <coughs> And see, here's where Revelation comes in. You'd expect to find this in Revelation, wouldn't you? He's been pouring out the seven seal judgments, the seven uh, uh, trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments, and the seven thunder judgments that we don't know what they are. But he has poured those out on all the earth. And in Revelation 16, they still blaspheme the name of the God of the heavens. That's because they think he's another god and they are become gods. And so they think it's a truly a war of the gods in the tribulation. And indeed it is. But they don't realize that there is an almighty God above, above all. And then Revelation 19, and I saw heaven opened. Earlier in that chapter, the bride. That's us. We've been made ready for our husband. That's the Lord. And guess what we get to do? Come back with him. It says riding on white horses. Now is that a divine transportation mechanism? And hence figurative language. Or is he going to mess with their heads and let us really ride back on horses? I'm, I'm really, I don't care to ride horses. Helen loves horses. So uh, she grew up on a farm. But riding horses is not high on my list of things to do on Saturday. But Will we ride a horse? I won't mind because I'll know how. <laughs> and I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful 
and truth. Uh, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies that are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us. Clothed in what? Fine linen. Along with what? Ten thousands of his godly ones, according to the book of Jude. His angels, his holy angels. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will shepherd them. You have rule in the English. It's shepherd them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, he will separate those within the nations into two categories. Remember, the angels are going to do it. He's going to send forth his angels. They're going to go gather everybody up. Now, they say, well, he must have a lot of angels. I'm sure he does. And uh, they'll probably be kind of like Lot trying to get away from the angels uh, that took him out of Sodom and Gomorrah because he and the family didn't really want to go. But it says he took them by the hands. The Hebrew says stuck like glue to their hands. So he basically drug them out because they promised Abraham they would go get him. Now it's time for judgment. That's second advent. He'll separate those within the nations into two categories. The goats will be those who never turn from their idolatry. They never turn from it. Second Corinthians 6. What agreement is the temple of God with idols? He's getting ready to establish his kingdom. How many idols are there going to be in the millennial kingdom? Zero. What's he going to do? Take out all the stumbling blocks from the nations. We read that earlier. We are among the we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I'll dwell in them, walk among them, I'll be their God, they shall be my people. Come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. There is going to be a physical separation of believers and unbelievers the second advent. And the sheep will be those who accepted the Lamb of God and connected to the chief shepherd. John chapter 10. Of course, John had to get a word in edgewise in here. Start talking about shepherds and sheep, you end up in John 10, which says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In the ancient world, even the modern world, sheepfolds had walls three or four feet tall around them. They had one entry. And the shepherd would sleep there so the sheep wouldn't sneak out at night. Good shepherd lays down for his sheep. He's a guardian. He was a hired hand, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. Sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I, will, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about Israel, but he's got other sheep. I like this. That's where we are. 
that are not of this fold. If you're Jewish, you're one of those sheep he's talking about. If you're Gentile, like most of us, we're part of the other sheep. And I will bring them also. They'll hear my voice. They'll become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. So I can take it up again. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment I receive from my Father. See, the Lord's a shepherd, not a goat herder. I don't know why that came out. It just did. Not that there's anything wrong with being a goat herder. It's an honorable profession. But in the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep are the ones with honor, not the goats. Goats were frequently used in the sin offerings. And I think about this because the... Uh, I think of Cain. And Cain was quite upset that the Lord didn't accept his offering. As we know, he killed his brother Abel. And as you read through Genesis 4, and you're reading through trying to figure out what happened, it says that uh, sin is lying at the door, or crouching at the door, and it's literally the word for a sin offering. The Lord is saying... I brought you the animal for the sacrifice. I don't accept your sacrifice. You knew that. You offered it anyway. Here's the animal laying at the door. You still have an opportunity, Cain, to join the real family. And Cain walked away from it. He said no. Now sadly, a lot of people are going to do just that. The devil is a master at blinding the minds of the unbelieving. He will go after the Bible. He will go after the Christians. And the thing about Christians, we are all flawed. That's the way it is. So he can accuse us all he wants, but we have a defense attorney. In 1 John 2, he is an advocate with the Father. So every time no devil accuses you, I heard a song a long time ago, Christian artist said, every time the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Yeah, because if you're a believer, your past has been forgiven. If you're not a believer, you're going to try and figure it out and try to talk the Lord into letting you in based on your own works. That's coming up in this, and it's not ever enough. It won't add up to what Jesus did. The gospel is so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace, and your mercy. Father, we thank you for the privilege of just being able to come into your presence. And Father, being able to, to uh, hear your word, to see your word, to see the beauty of it, to see how coherent it is, how cohesive it is. Father, in your word is truth. So let us search for truth in your word so that we might evaluate what is going on in the world about us. And Father, I pray also we will be your disciples. And as your disciples, we will carry out the message of the gospel of grace.
to a lost, unbelieving world. Father, we pray for the wisdom, the strength, the gumption to just be able to do this. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.